Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our Associate Care Pastor, Joshua Masters, continues in our series on Galatians. If you would like to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do that on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find all of that more on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. There is power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do we know that this morning? Do you have that power living inside you? Do you have that freedom? That's what we're talking about today. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And this morning, we're continuing our series on the book of Galatians called Living Free. Now, we're going to be starting in the middle of chapter 3 today, so you can go ahead and turn or swipe in your Bibles to that passage, chapter 3 of Galatians. If you're using the Bible that we have available here at Brookwood Church, we are on page 939 this morning, 939. Now, last week, Paul presented a series of arguments, or he started presenting a series of arguments for being made right with God through faith rather than through works. And just as we said last week, Paul's arguments in this chapter and in the following chapters are unfolding like a courtroom drama. He's presenting witnesses, he's asking rhetorical questions, he's presenting evidence to prove his case. So if you missed the beginning of the trial, I would encourage you to go back and watch last week's message either on our website or in the Brookwood Church app that David talked about. But since you can't do that right now, let me give you a quick summary. It would be rude if you did it now. (laughs) Put simply, Paul's making a case for the gospel. He's making a case that God's grace and faith in Christ is all that's required for salvation, not the efforts of works that we try to do on our own. He's working against the arguments of the Judaizers who say in order to be saved, you must become Jewish and follow the Jewish law in addition to your faith. So last week, we looked at Paul's first two arguments. And if you go back and watch that, you'll see that his first two arguments were the evidence of a believer's experience and the evidence of Scripture. Today, we're going to look at his next two arguments. So his arguments for today are the evidence of God's promise and the evidence against the law of Moses. So if you take out your outlines and just look at your outlines for a moment, you're going to notice a pattern. There are three fill-ins about God's promise, and there are three parallel fill-ins about the law of Moses so that we can compare them point by point as we go through the morning. Now, last week, we stopped at verse 15 of chapter 3. But in order to really compare Paul's argument today, it's important that we back up a couple verses. So let's review verses 13 and 14 from last week. Chapter 3, verse 13. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, 
Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Now, does anyone remember our final fill-in from last week? What was the final fill-in last week? None of you were here. What? Yes, okay. True belief in Christ removes the curse. That's what that verse is talking about, removing the curse. God made a promise to Abraham, and by that promise, we also receive salvation through faith. Now, we're going to delve into that promise in just a few minutes, but it's important to understand that when the curse is removed, so is our sin, so is our failures, so is our imperfections. Look at Colossians 2.13. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. And he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And we've talked about that word canceled before. When it says canceled in this verse, the word means to erase, to wipe out, to destroy, to obliterate. Every sin you've ever committed every sin you will ever commit is completely forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Completely forgiven by being completely erased through faith in him. So removing the curse, as we talked about last week, the promise of God removes our sin. The promise of God removes our sin. Psalm 103 tells us he has removed our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. It's no longer connected to us. There is no record of it. Does your life reflect that truth? Do you remember the weight that you carried before that you were saved? Are you carrying a burden of sin today, right now? Some of you have never truly surrendered to a life with Christ. And you carry that burden with you every day. God doesn't want you to carry that burden. But I'm also talking to those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, yet continue to carry shame and guilt as if it's something noble to do. Like our shame and our guilt is some sort of purifying force. A penance that we pay for purification. That's a lie. Shame and guilt can never purify you. It only shackles you. And it's a lie the enemy uses to distract you from a healing relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die to share in your sin. Jesus died to take it away completely. And when we learn to live in that truth, instead of the lies that the enemy tells us, that's when we'll find the freedom and the strength to really partner with Christ in the work of his kingdom. Faith is all that is required to be made right with God. That is the promise of God's grace. And he revealed that promise through his covenant with Abraham. Now, Paul's argument from last week proved beyond any doubt that Abraham was made right with God through his faith, not by any action he took, not by any law he followed, just by faith. 
Abraham was given the full righteousness of God through his faith alone. But the Judaizers, who believed Gentiles could only be saved by becoming Jewish and following the Jewish law, would likely have said, okay, all right, you've made your point, Paul. But once Moses received the law, that changed everything. Well, Paul anticipates that question, and so he continues. Verse 15. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. So in this case, the word agreement in this verse is used most regularly to refer to someone's final will and testament, which was unchangeable. In other words, Paul is saying, we don't even amend or change our own legal agreements once they've been ratified or sealed. So if we don't change our most important agreements, why would we think God, who is perfect in his integrity, would change his? Continuing in verse 16. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scriptures don't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. This is what I'm saying. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. So first, Paul points out that when God promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through his seed, and the word seed or child here is singular. So although Abraham was promised as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, Genesis 15:5, the promise of salvation through faith is tied to a single descendant, and that descendant is Jesus Christ. Only Christ. Make sure you get this. The promise of God is not an obscure philosophy or theology. The promise of God is Jesus Christ. Christ has been God's promise of restoration through faith since the very beginning. Jesus Christ was God's promise to Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15. Jesus was God's promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. He was God's promise to Israel through Moses, Numbers 21, 6 through 9. He is God's promise to David, 2 Samuel 7, 16. He was God's promise to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 5. And Jesus Christ is your promise of restoration with God, John 3, 16. God's promise is eternal. So Paul is saying that the law that was given 430 years after God's promise can't change or alter the promise because God's word is unchanging. God is not a man, the book of Numbers tells us, so he doesn't lie. He's not human, so he doesn't change his mind. He, has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? No. Never. Our God is a God who delights in keeping his promises. Look what God said about his promise to David. This is also at the top of your outline. No, I will not break my covenant. I will not take back a single word I said. I have sworn an oath to David, and in my holiness, 
I cannot lie. In his holiness, God cannot lie. God is faithful. But here's the problem. I think there are many of us here in this room who believe, truly believe in the promises of God, but have a hard time believing those promises are really for us. Do we believe in changed lives? Yes. Do we believe in healing? Yes. Do we believe in miracles? Absolutely. But do we believe that he'll do those things in our lives? If we're really honest, I think for many of us in this room, the answer is no. Not because we doubt God's ability, but because we doubt that we deserve that kind of grace. We still think that God is keeping a record, a tally of those sins that Jesus erased. But the promises of God are not dependent on your integrity. The promises of God are only dependent on his. Let me show you something. Now, this gets a little bit deep, so stay with me. But skip down to verse 20. Verse 20. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. What does that mean? When God made his promise to Abraham, Abraham believed and he received righteousness through faith. But what's this thing about not needing a mediator? In his faith, not snarky, not salty, but truly in his faith, Abraham asked God, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure of this promise? Genesis 15, 8. And when God heard Abraham's question, he entered into a blood covenant with Abraham. Now, blood covenants were common in Abraham's day, but honestly, it's going to seem kind of gross to us. So those of you who have kids in here because of one camp today, I am sorry for this. But this is how the blood covenant worked. When parties reached an agreement in Abraham's day, they would take a number of animals from their livestock and the two parties would cut the animals in half. Uh, awesome, right? The two parties would cut several animals in half and then separate the two halves of the livestock. So half the cow goes over here and the other half of the cow goes over here. Then we'll take the goat and half the goat goes here and the other half of the goat goes over here. And they'd make a path between the slaughtered animals so that the two parties in the agreement could walk between the carcasses together. That's kind of nasty. We think that that's strange. When I came here four years ago and I agreed to the benefit package, I didn't look at Nina Mitchell and David Hardy and say, okay, sounds good, let's cut some animals in half and go for a walk. <laughs> they probably would have retracted the job offer. But you have to understand that animals were their most valuable possessions. And by walking through that carnage together, what they were essentially saying was, may I end up like one of these animals if I don't keep up my end of the bargain. That's pretty serious. So God, 
knowing that he needs assurance, has Abraham gather a cow and a goat and a ram, several birds. God has Abraham slaughter them and he cuts the larger animals in half and he arranges them for the ceremony. But look what happens next in Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, Abram, and this is before God changed his name to Abraham, so it says Abram, but Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. And then we skip down to verse 17. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abraham saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day. What do you notice that's strange about that ceremony? Come on. God didn't let Abraham participate. Why? Because the promise of God relies on God, not man. The promises of God relies on God, not man. And if you struggle to live in the promises God has for your life because you're afraid you can't keep up your end of the bargain, you have to understand that God has made a blood covenant with you too. But he didn't use the blood of a goat. He used the blood of Jesus Christ. We can have assurance in God's promises and we can have assurance in our salvation because it relies on God's honor, not ours. The promise of God's path for salvation depends only, only on his word and the blood of Jesus Christ. Every promise given to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus. And in fact, all the promises of God find their yes in the name of Christ. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Do you understand the significance of that? Let's look at our next verse. Go back to verse 18 in Galatians. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Look at that phrase, graciously gave it to Abraham. By its very nature, an inheritance is something you receive and cannot earn. The inheritance Paul is talking about is salvation through Jesus Christ. You cannot earn it. You cannot win it. You cannot find it. But for a revelation from the Spirit, the grace of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son. This verse says that he graciously gave it to Abraham graciously gave. But that is not how that phrase is most commonly translated in the New Testament. That's a rare translation. Because the meaning of that word and the way it's normally translated is forgiveness. The promise of God results in grace. The promise of God results in grace and we receive forgiveness that we have not earned and do not deserve. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. 
not because we deserve it, but because God's love is greater than our sin. Stop believing that your failures are too big for God's grace. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Romans 3, 23 and 24. We are free from the penalty of sin. The law has no grip on us. Death has no hold on us. We have victory in Jesus Christ. But that raises an interesting question. If the law that was given to Moses had no effect on the promise to Abraham, and if, as we've proven, the standard has always been salvation through faith alone, what's the purpose of the law? Why did God even give the law to Moses? After last week, several of you actually asked me that question. And I guess Paul knew that you were going to ask that question too. Because after he establishes the evidence of God's unchanging promise, he transitions to his fourth argument. Remember, we had two last week and two this week. He transitions to his fourth argument, the evidence against the law of Moses. And in that, he will explain why the law was given. We continue in verse 19. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming child who was promised. The law was never designed to be fulfilled by man, but only to highlight our inability to fulfill it. The promise of God removes our sin, but the law of Moses can only reveal our sin. The law of Moses reveals our sin. The purpose of the law is to help humanity see how far from God's standard we have fallen. Why? To make us feel bad? Yes. You didn't think that was the answer, did you? But God, God is a God of love. God, God doesn't want me to feel bad. If it means feeling such conviction over your sin... That it moves you to seek him, he absolutely does. If it means not having to surrender you to an eternity separated from him, he absolutely wants the law to devastate you. God is not trying to protect your feelings, he is trying to protect your soul. The truth is, we live in a culture of easy conversion. Say a one-minute prayer and you're done. But the law of God should bring us to such a place of despair over our inability to reach him that we become desperate for his grace. A.B. Simpson, the theologian, he describes salvation and also sanctification as requiring a spiritual crisis. He called it the crisis moment. 
in which the Holy Spirit reveals and convicts us of our sin. We must be brought to a place of complete humility before the holiness of God. And during his own crisis moment, A.B. Simpson describes how God made him aware of his absolute nothingness in comparison to God. And that's when a mentor of Simpson told him, and make sure you catch this, all you need in order to bring you into the blessing that you're seeking and to make your life a power for God is to be absolutely annihilated. And that's exactly what we need. Do you want God's blessings? Do you want your life to be a power for God? See, we want the blessings without the conviction of spirit. And it doesn't work that way. We need to be aware of our sin, not casually aware, but in a terrifying way that strips us of our self-sufficiency. We have reduced the grace of God to an Instagram post when it should drive us to our knees. The law cannot save us, but it is vital in understanding our fallen nature because God's offer of grace is meaningless to someone who doesn't know they need it. When he wrote to the Roman church, Paul gave an example from his own life. This is what he wrote to the Romans. It was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. The law is what makes us understand the holiness of God. And you cannot come to know the holiness of God without also realizing your own depravity. We are incapable of reaching God. No one can be made right with God through the law or through works or through our actions, Galatians 3.11. But it can compel us through the Holy Spirit to seek God's grace. And that's what it should do. Now, once we begin growing in Christ, the law has a secondary purpose of helping us identify what it means to be more Christ-like in our journey toward that goal. But either way, the law can only show us our sin. It can't do anything to repair it. The question is, what are you going to do once it's revealed? Because sin can either compel us toward Christ or draw us deeper into its grasp. We cannot do it on our own. Which leads us to the second reason the law, or really any types of works mentality, is insufficient to bring salvation. We said that the promise of God relies on God, not man. But the law of Moses relies on man, not God. As MacArthur pointed out, and this is a very important point, in his promise to Abraham, God said, I will. But in the law of Moses, he said, thou shalt. 
you must. Read the verses from Exodus 20 listed in your outline. You know them. You know the Ten Commandments. Every law requires our perfect obedience. Living by the law is dependent solely on us and our abilities. The problem is we can't do it. It's impossible. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Romans 8.3 If restoration with God relies on the actions of man, if even one requirement we are responsible for, then we are lost for eternity. We continue in the middle of verse 19. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, back to 20. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Now, Scripture is not fully clear what role the angels played in giving the law to Moses. But it's mentioned several places in the New Testament so that we know that they did. But this is what's important about these two verses. The law required a mediator between God and the people. Several layers, angels and Moses. And that's because the law can only cause separation from God. That's the only thing the law can do, cause separation from God. But God's promise to Abraham was given personally and graciously as a friend. 2 Chronicles 20, Isaiah 41. And Matthew tells us that God calls us friends. So which life do you want? You can have intimacy with God or you can have separation from God. But what you cannot have is a casual acquaintance with God. The law must compel us into the arms of God or we will remain under its curse. Verse 21. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promise? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. We are prisoners of sin. Last fill-in, the promise of God results in grace, but the law of Moses results in condemnation. It results in shackles and shame, beaten down by our past mistakes. It results in imprisonment. It results in failure and separation from God. It results in death. I will be honest, I really struggled with the second half of this message because it is dark. And this whole section about the law feels dark. 
and it feels discouraging. And the further you dig into the law, the more bleak our position becomes. But I think it's discouraging because it's supposed to feel that way. Because there is no hope in the law. There is no way to draw hope out of the law. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. A few minutes ago, we started reading Romans 8.3. Let's read the whole thing. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Listen, this series, this, this passage, this book is not about theology. It's about life. It's about being set free. We are being called to God for a greater freedom and a greater purpose. And when we have experienced the true freedom of Christ, when we experience God's grace, our, our souls, they should worship and they should cry out in song, released from my chains, I am a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. Free, free, forever I'm free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Is that what your soul sings? Is that victory your life song? Let's celebrate his grace. Make this song your prayer. Make this song your worship. Come. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Is God calling you into that song. Our passage today ends with these words. This is our final verse. We receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept under protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. The way of faith has been revealed. Jesus Christ is our hope and he is our restoration. And if the Holy Spirit is moving you today to lay down that burden, whatever that looks like in your life, if you sense that crisis moment in your spirit, not out of emotion, but out of a true revelation of God's holiness and our need for his grace. Then don't leave without experiencing that grace. We will have volunteers, care volunteers down front in the care connection room. They're ready to pray with you. They're ready to encourage you. Trying to reach God by our own works is a curse. The law is a fatal disease but the cure is Jesus Christ. God is faithful 
and his promise is true. Father God, I call a blessing over this room. Not because we deserve it, but because your love is greater than our failures. Lord, I think so often, myself included, we are so casual about our sin when we need to bring it before you on our knees. God, you are faithful and you could have left us. You could have abandoned us when we abandoned you. But you seek us and you pursue us and you fight for us. Teach us how to seek you and pursue you and fight for you. In the name of Jesus Christ who bore that curse, we proclaim all together in one voice, amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. If you would like to know more about the many ways that you can connect with Christians at Brookwood, or if you just have questions about who we are, you can email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.